You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On the podcast this week, in the US, Hillary Clinton is now all but the Democratic nominee. But Bernie Sanders keeps on running, and Trump shows no sign of rebranding, of moderating his image. His latest attack on a judge ruling on a case he's involved in has even angered his Conservative supporters. Polls in Britain are beginning to show a Brexit majority. Is the campaign slipping away from David Cameron and a half-hearted Labour Party? And in the Middle East, we look at the deepening antagonism between Saudi Arabia and Iran, a conflict that is complicating and aggravating all the regional wars and political standoffs. First to Washington and our correspondent Simon Carswell. As we speak, the polls have just opened in the Democratic primary in California that will certainly seal the deal for Hillary. In practice, however, the real fight against Donald Trump has started. She seems to have found a new voice. When I hear Donald Trump attacking people based on their immigrant status, their religion, their disabilities, their gender, whatever the reason he attacks people, I am so upset because that's not who we are as Americans. And I want to tell you, just recently, he has been attacking a distinguished federal judge, a federal judge who was born in Indiana. He is as American as I am, and he's as American as Donald Trump is. Simon, Hillary still carries a a huge burden of uh, unpopularity. But in California, uh, she seems to have found a new way to deal with Trump that has won a widespread uh, praise, a sort of mix of humor and tough polemic. Yeah, I think California marked a turning point in Hillary Clinton's campaign, not just the fact that the Democratic primary and her fight against the Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders is coming to an end, but I think she's realizing that she now needs to pivot towards what's going to be a pretty brutal general election campaign against Donald Trump. And I think it was just a surprise that for a lot of people that she had not come out more strongly against Donald Trump. But the the kind of watershed moment for me was this uh, foreign policy speech, which was it was pitched as a foreign policy speech, but really it was an attack on Donald Trump and questioning whether uh, he is uh, fit to hold office and question his qualifications to hold office. And she really went from it was a really very effective speech. Uh, She attacked him as being temperamentally unfit. She described his foreign policy ideas as dangerously coherent. And she said, in fact, his ideas are not just really ideas, they're just a series of bizarre rants, personal feuds and outright lies. And she actually raised the issue of the nuclear codes and the fact that this is a man who has access or could have access as commander in chief and in the Oval Office to nuclear weapons. And I think it was a very damaging speech um, for Donald Trump and the fact that he responded with uh, some pretty poor responses uh, and really just focused attention on this fight, as you mentioned, as was mentioned in the clip there by Hillary Clinton, on this federal judge. So I think she's really showing that this is now a fight against Donald Trump and no longer a fight against Bernie Sanders. Yeah, she she found a way of getting under his skin by saying that he was very thin, thin skinned. You you were um, in California for a few days. Can you talk to me a bit about the mood of, of voters there as we come to the end of the primary season? 
Well, what I picked up was, and I went to two rallies. I went to a Bernie Sanders rally in the San Francisco Bay Area, and then I went to a Donald Trump rally in Sacramento, about a two and a half hour drive away from San Francisco. Um, and the sense I picked up was that uh, a lot of uh, Democratic voters who were supporting Bernie Sanders, uh, when I asked them whether they would support Hillary Clinton in the general election. They said they would, and that was a bit of a change because I'd found in previous states I'd been to, the likes of Indiana, uh, some of the East Coast states, uh, the likes of uh, New York and Pennsylvania, people were very put off uh, on the Democratic side, people who were supporting Bernie Sanders, progressives and younger voters in particular, that they wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. But I think for them, they see that they're not so much voting for Hillary Clinton, but they're voting against Donald Trump. And that was something that I picked up at a Sanders rally. They were saying that, well, we're not voting for Hillary Clinton. And they justified it saying that well, we're voting against Donald Trump. So it's kind of an unusual psychology around uh, the Bernie Sanders voters. But I think when it comes to it, they just cannot possibly support Donald Trump. The problem for Hillary Clinton is turnout. She now she needs to try and get these young progressives, these voters who are supporting Bernie Sanders in such large numbers. She needs to get them out. She needs to get them out to vote in November and she needs to win them over. So uh, the worst thing for her is, is that they would sit out the general election and that might hand Donald Trump an advantage uh, amongst those voters. Now, some of this will depend on what Sanders himself does and whether he's willing to strongly endorse her and call on his campaigners uh, to support her. Is he giving any indication or is it, is it a fight till the very bitter end? Well, <clears throat> he's um, publicly, he's saying that he's going to fight this all the way to a convention. And in fact, he's even calling the convention in July in Philadelphia. It'll be a contested convention. And his plan is to, well, he's not going to win the majority of the pledge delegates. These are the delegates that are awarded in the state primaries and caucuses. But when he goes to the convention, he's going to argue that these super delegates, these are the party leaders and the party officials who have already backed Hillary Clinton in such large numbers. He's going to make the case to them to say, well, hypothetical head-to-head polls are showing that I'm beating uh, uh, Donald Trump by even bigger numbers than Hillary Clinton. Therefore, I am the candidate that should represent the Democratic Party in November. Um, he's, he's, he's coming under intense pressure to um, step aside at this stage and to, to agree to support Hillary Clinton as the Democratic nominee. There was a phone call over the weekend from President Barack Obama to Bernie Sanders, clearly trying to put pressure uh, on Bernie Sanders to step out uh, of the race uh, and to concede defeat to Hillary Clinton, which is expected to happen with these six states voting today. Um, and these are the final state contests uh, before the District of Columbia votes on June 14th. So he's going to come under immense pressure to say, yes, um, I haven't won enough delegates and she is the winner. But right now, publicly, he's saying that I'm going to convince the superdelegates, many of whom backed Hillary Clinton before uh, state voters even went to the polls and the primaries and the caucuses starting in February. And he's going to make the case to them and say, well, you need to support me because I have a better chance against Trump. And, and there's no evidence in the past of superdelegates changing their allegiance in, in, in significant numbers. No, and in fact, Barack Obama needed superdelegates to get over the line uh, in 2008 in his very bitter fight with Hillary Clinton. So, uh, but this this feeds into Bernie Sanders' view and uh, a view that works up a lot of his supporters. He claims that the uh, the election system, the political system, is rigged. Uh, and really, so when he says that the superdelegates are supporting uh, Hillary Clinton in disproportionate numbers, that feeds that complaint that he has and that his supporters, many of his supporters agree with that the system is stacked against uh, insurgent candidates 
candidates are populist candidates like Bernie Sanders and that the political establishment is this whole process sewn up. Turning to, to Donald Trump, in recent uh, days and, and, and weeks, he's managed to bring elements of the Republican Party who'd been very hostile to him uh, for the good of the party in, in round rallying behind him. Notably, Paul Ryan, the leader of the House, who'd been uh, so uh, adamant in refusing to support him. But he's done so without changing his line, without sort of rebranding, and very much as he reaffirmed the other day in an interview. We have to stop being so politically correct in this country, and we need a little more common sense, John. And I'm not blaming, I'm proud of my heritage. We're all proud of our heritage, but I want to build a wall. Now, the Hispanics, many of them like what I'm saying. They're here legally. They don't want people coming and taking their jobs and taking their house and everything else. They don't want that. And in his latest outburst against a, a judge, it was vintage Trump. And, and this is clearly the Trump who will be running from now on. Well, it is, and he's refusing to back down. And I suppose he's every right not to back down because he's done so well in the primary. Um, I mean, he saw 16 candidates, established uh, politicians, career politicians, state governors, um, senators, household names in American politics. So he's of the view that, well, why should I change? Um, but I think much like there's been a turning point in Hillary Clinton's campaign for her and her repositioning, there's been something of a turning point, I think, this week as well in Donald Trump. Um, his attacks on this California judge, Gonzalo Curiel, uh, the judge who's presiding over one of these cases that's been taken against Trump universities by students who claim they've been ripped off by the university that uh, Donald Trump set up in 2005. That attack on the judge, I think, has been miscalculated by Donald Trump. Um, many Republicans have come out before in, uh, in attacking many of the controversial things that he said during the primary election campaign. But this is unusual in that there is such widespread condemnation from Republicans and even Republicans that had supported him. For, the, uh, for example, the likes of Paul Ryan, who came out with a very tepid endorsement last week. Uh, he came out and said he didn't agree with uh, Donald Trump's attack. And also you have senior Republicans in the Senate, the likes of Mitch McConnell, and the likes of Bob Corker, the chairman of the Foreign Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who's tipped as a potential running mate for Donald Trump, they've come out and attacked him over this um, over this criticism of the judge and these racially tinged and personal uh, attacks on a judge who's very respected amongst Republican circles. He was appointed by Arnold Schwarzenegger, the former uh, Republican governor of California, and this is someone who this is a judge who has taken on Mexican uh, drug cartels. Um, at great personal risk to him. Uh, and so you've seen this widespread response to Donald Trump coming out against him, saying he's possibly stepped too far on this one. And this is the man who is going to name the next uh, member of the Supreme Court uh, if he's elected uh, president. Uh, the the state of his organisation, I mean, this apparently is going to be the most expensive uh, election cycle in, in history. They're talking about eight billion dollars. What's the state of uh, of his national political organization? Um, and the reports that traditional f Republican fundraisers are, are giving their money to congressional candidates rather than to him. Well, there's a there's a huge congressional race going on in November as well, which concerns a lot of um, Republicans running so-called down the ticket um, in the election. Um, there's 34 Senate states and uh, Senate races going on. And there's a real risk that the Democrats will be able to win back the Senate. And there's even talk that given how polarizing Donald Trump's campaign is, um, that perhaps the House of Representatives, which uh, 
is held by the Republicans. That may even be in play again, depending on, on how voters react to his candidacy. As for his own organization, he's really relied on social media to an extent never seen before. He makes major announcements on his Twitter account. Uh, in, many, in many ways, he has bypassed the party apparatus that um, candidates in the past have relied on so extensively. But you're seeing now with five months to the general election, to the ballot in November, that um, he's having to beef up his campaign team um, with uh, political insiders. For example, he hired um, uh, Jim Murphy, who's well known as a, he previously worked on Bob Dole's presidential campaigns in 1988 and 1996. He's come on board. Uh, he, uh, he hired uh, some months ago uh, Paul Manafort, who's experienced in working in the conventions in the 70s. So Trump himself has recognized that he needs to add to his team and he needs while he's running an outsider campaign that's got a lot of that's been so popular amongst Republicans, he needs insiders at this stage to to help him fight this general election against Hillary Clinton. And he's clearly not going to pay for the whole thing himself. No, I, I think you're going to see that um, more and more donations come in. He had said he has said that in the general election, he's not going to rely solely on his own funds, and that was a big selling point for him amongst Republicans. I don't know how many rallies I've been to where voters come up to you and say, you know, he's, he's not backed by anybody else's money. And that was a real um, a point of appeal for a lot of the voters in, in supporting Donald Trump. Now, the polling has, has narrowed and uh, uh, Hillary Clinton still seems to be ahead in most of the polls, but it's, it's tighter. It's in the contest for electoral college votes, which is a feature of the American system, which is quite uh, complicated and different, though. He is still, there are some pretty hefty mountains that he has to climb. There are. Um, I mean, the pivotal states to watch are the likes of Ohio, Florida, to a lesser extent, Colorado. And he's not doing well in those. Um, for example, uh, Florida, which has a large Hispanic community, is really going to struggle there, given his remarks about minorities, his remarks about Mexicans, his plan to build a, a wall on the border with Mexico. So he's in, he's in real difficulty in places like Florida. There's talk that he could potentially... And name Rick Scott, the governor of Florida, uh, as his running mate, although I'm not sure that would do him any favours in Florida. But really, if he, if he can't compete in those battleground states, then he's in serious trouble. And also the issue with some of the comments that he's made, some of the incendiary remarks that he's made, could put the likes of Arizona, a Republican state, which leans Republican in presidential races, that that could swing for the Democrats. So it's not even assured that he'd be able to win states that Republicans traditionally win. Although if you look at some of the demographics across the country where he is doing very well is in some of the industrial states, some of the Rust Belt states, the likes of Michigan. He could do well in parts of Ohio that might swing that state. He could do well in Pennsylvania. Um, he could do well in Illinois. So these are these are states that um, that that could play to his favor, given his um, his campaign against trade deals, his uh, popular um, uh, popular policies attacking um, jobs that have been shipped overseas, uh, tax incentives for large companies to, to move abroad. So it, it could bring in more states certainly into play, but he's not going to do well in some of the battleground states that he really needs to win in to have any chance of winning the White House. Thank you very much, Simon. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. Two weeks to go to the Brexit referendum, and in recent days, opinion polls have been showing slight majorities in favour of leave. 
Dennis Staunton, our London editor, you've been out touring the country. Is that your sense of the mood on the ground? It varies. It depends on where you go and who you talk to. I don't think that the Leave campaign is actually ahead. And still, if you look at most polls, the, the, you know, the average of polls, it still would suggest that the Remain side is ahead. But there's no question but that the, the race has been tightening over the last week or so. And also, if you look sort of a little bit below the surface, what you find is that some of the arguments that uh, the Remain campaign have been pushing, like particularly the fact that it's too risky to leave the European Union, about the economic risk, they seem to be getting a little bit tired where voters are concerned. And at the same time, the uh, the issue of immigration is really playing very, very well for the Leave campaign. I think that one reason why the immigration uh, issue is playing so well is because uh, the Leave campaign has rather cleverly linked it to public services. And public services in Britain, as in many other European countries, uh, over the last few years, they've been, they've been starved of funding. And so they're overburdened already. And if you then link some of this extra burden uh, to the fact that you have uh, a lot of inward migration, a very high level of inward migration from the European Union, and you blame that, then that seems to make something that might otherwise be theoretical. It makes it, it, makes it seem very real to people because they can blame that for the reason why they were waiting in the doctor's waiting room or why their kid can't get into the school that his brother got into. But there's a paradox there in the sense that uh, the NHS is largely staffed by, uh, by migrants. Is that not the case? Yes, it is. But uh, but I think, again, uh, I, and there's no question, but I mean, if you, if you talk to any economist, they will tell you that the uh, migrants, generally speaking, you know, that actually just as a, you know, it's a simple fact that they are actually a boon to the economy in so many ways. They pay much more in in terms of taxes and they take out in terms of uh, benefits. But still, the point is that the simplistic argument would be, well, actually, you might need all of these uh, extra staff from other countries if you didn't have quite so many patients who were coming from other countries. Well, apart from that particular argument, where do you think it is that the um, Leave argument is, is beginning to tell on the, uh, uh, on the voters? I think that is the main argument. The other thing, though, is uh, where the Leave or the Remain campaign of a problem is their main spokesman, who is the Prime Minister. You had on uh, Thursday of last week, there was a forum on Sky News, uh, David Cameron on Thursday and Michael Gove on Friday. And the audience for David Cameron was really quite hostile. And it was quite clear that they were uh, quite keen to beat him up not just about Europe, but about every other domestic issue and all of their domestic uh, grievances. And again, the polling uh, is showing that people are trusting David Cameron less and less on the issue of Europe. And they're trusting Boris Johnson, who is frankly a lot less trustworthy on this subject. They're actually trusting him much more than they have been. So, that, uh, so that's, a, that's a problem because David Cameron has been so out front and centre. There's another problem, which is because of the fact that so much of the debate has been between competing wings of the Conservative Party, what they call blue-on-blue action, uh, a lot of Labour voters don't actually know what the Labour Party policy is. Now, this is exacerbated by the fact that the Labour Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn, is an extremely lukewarm supporter of the Remain campaign. He's been a Eurosceptic all his life, uh, ever since he uh, teamed up with Tony Benn to campaign against uh, Britain's first referendum on the European Union in 1975. So, uh, so there's a problem with that because about 47% of the people who support Remain are Labour voters. But if they're not motivated, if they think that this is actually really an argument among Conservatives, 
they may think that it's nothing to do with them and they may not go out to vote. That at least is the fear of the Remain campaigners. And one would have thought, actually, that Labour's uh, had, a, had a particularly strong argument in the sense of a prospect of a government run by the likes of Gove, Johnson and Farage uh, as, as something that, that is, uh, would be extremely shocking to most Labour supporters. And now, ironically, they're, they're campaigning against uh, what they say is an elitist uh, uh, project. So that particular group of Tories are now opposing in Labour's left-wing garb. That's right, and, uh, and suddenly uh, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove have suddenly discovered their great affection for the National Health Service and for well-funded public services, and they say that if we weren't sending all this money to Brussels that we'd be able to spend so much more of it on public services. Now, this is not a view that they ever uh, voiced if they ever espoused it before, uh, but now they're, now they're using this. Uh, you're quite right that uh, for Labour people, their big argument about the European Union is, uh, many of them would say they're not entirely happy with the political direction of the European Union in recent years. But nonetheless, uh, without the European Union, uh, uh, people like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove would make a bonfire of workers' rights. And many of these workers' rights are protected by the European Union. I was at a a meeting of a a left-wing group called uh, Another Europe is Possible. It's a campaigning group, uh, sort of an umbrella group for many people on the left, mostly Labour people, and a lot of trade unionists there. And they were making this kind of grudging case, in a way, for Europe, but saying that actually uh, the job of people on the left was uh, not to leave, but to stay in the European Union and to work with other Europeans who are like-minded to try to change the policies on a pan-European basis. And one of the things we're hearing over here from from uh, government spokesmen is, the, is that they are perturbed by the fact that the issue of Northern Ireland, and indeed Ireland, is not really being raised in the UK campaign at all, although Osborne was in the north uh, over the last few days with a, with a strong message. Is, is that really the case? Is It's not coming up in any of the uh, debates? It doesn't tend to come up very much in the debates. It, it, it's, uh, it's mentioned usually in all the official literature on the Remain side as being, you know, and another thing uh, that could be problematic. And there's no question but that uh, there's quite a lot of targeting, uh, not just of voters in Northern Ireland, where they're expecting a pretty uh, clear majority in favour of remaining, but also uh, Irish people living in Britain and a number of Irish ministers uh, are visiting uh, different parts of the United Kingdom over the next uh, week or two uh, to try to effectively to join the campaign for a remain vote. And they're being, uh, being pretty uh, open about the fact that they're, uh, they're siding with one side of the argument rather than the other. So the, the, the Northern Ireland issue isn't all that big in it. But of course, the other issue that really doesn't come up that much is Europe itself. The thing is really being fought on uh, a series of domestic issues. But what it's really crystallizing into now as we're getting into the last couple of weeks is one very straightforward argument, which is, do you want to uh, end the free movement of people from the rest of the European Union and as the price for that to lose your access to the European single market? Or do you want to maintain your access to the single market and all of the economic stability and prosperity that that means, but that you actually accept that it is going to mean that you're going to have to accept the free movement of people? So it's, a, it's, a, it's becoming a, a straightforward choice between those two things, because for quite a long time, the uh, Leave campaign were rather coy about what kind of trading relationship they wanted. And they still haven't 
uh, actually decided on one particular option for what would happen after they, Britain leaves the European Union. But they have now all more or less come into line to say that they would leave the single market because, and they would, uh, so that they wouldn't try for a Norwegian-style option of being part of the European economic area because that does actually involve an obligation to respect the free movement of people. So they wouldn't ever actually be able to, uh, uh, to achieve their main uh, aim of reducing immigration. Thank you very much, Dennis. You're listening to the Irish Times. On Monday, Ramadan, Islam's holy month, began. It's a month during which Muslims abstain from eating and drinking during daylight hours. For many, it's also the occasion of the Hajj, the visit to Mecca that is a religious duty for all Muslims. This year, the tens of thousands of Iranian pilgrims will not be attending because of a dispute with the Saudi authorities who control the shrine a dispute that is a manifestation of a bitter rift between the two countries over what is effectively the leadership of Islam. Michael Jansen, this is both a theological and political rift which is contributing to exacerbating military and political conflicts right across the region. What is the basis of this division? Well, the division uh, began with the death of the Prophet Muhammad over who was due to succeed him. And the Sunni party, which is what they called the Orthodox, uh, said that the best person amongst his companions, the most uh, respected person, should be uh, the successor of the Prophet as Caliph. And the Shia party, which means actually party Shia, um, they insisted that the person who should succeed him should be a relative, and the first uh, person's name that they put forward was Ali, who was his son-in-law and uh, adopted son. And this row has persisted for 1,400 years plus, and has uh, waxed and waned over the centuries. Um, both the Sunnis and the Shias are regarded as legitimate Orthodox Muslims, although some Sunnis do not believe Shias are Muslims at all. That's particularly the case of the Wahhabists, uh, the Saudi, uh, the Saudi yes. uh, version of the Sunni uh, religion. Yes, the Saudi uh, Wahhabi sect uh, rejects Shiism altogether and insists that uh, Shias are non-Muslims um, or heretics. And some of the first... Uh, actions of the Wahhabis were to attack Shias, and uh, they also went into uh, what is now Iraq and uh, leveled uh, Karbala and uh, attacked Najaf, which are the two Shia holy um, sites. Um, the problem is that um, the Shias are about 15% of the world's Muslims, whereas the Sunnis are the vast majority. And the Shias are um, a majority in only two countries, well, actually three, uh, but um, the two countries which are most important are Iran and Iraq. And then they are the majority in Bahrain, where they are ruled by a Sunni uh, king. Um, the problem is that the relations between these communities have deteriorated particularly since the 2003 U.S. war 
which ousted Saddam Hussein from Iraq. What we're talking about is not only a, a struggle for, for theological leadership in the, in, in the Middle East, but a political struggle too. They're, they're very different regimes. Iran is not a feudal society. Uh, it, it's not run by a, a royal family. And there are strong elements of democratic structures in Iran. And that, that is, is a, a, a strong contrast to, to the Saudi situation. Yes, it is. Uh, the Iranian revolution that took place in 1979 uh, put in place a sort of dual structure, one which was the, uh, the rule of the enlightened, um, which is the clerical class, which has set up structures to actually run the show. And then there is the democratic uh, system where there are elections which are serious elections. And um, this is in very large contrast to what happens in Saudi Arabia because it is a monarchical system and um, the rule is passed from one son to another of the founder of the regime in Saudi Arabia, Abdulaziz ibn Saud. Also, the interpretation of rights and responsibilities is very different. I mean, Iranian women vote and run for office and go to university and drive cars and have a reasonable life, whereas in Saudi Arabia, women are prevented from uh, driving cars and they have to have uh, the company of a male relative when they leave home. Now, what's happened in, in the course of the last couple of years is that Iran has begun to come out of the dip diplomatic freezer, in, in effect. Its deal with the West on, on nuclear weapons has annoyed both the, the Israelis and the Saudis for, for slightly different reasons. But it gave Iran the opportunity to reassert itself uh, regionally, uh, uh, politically and economically, uh, and to, to change the balance of forces, to begin to change the balance of forces in the region. Well, I mean, the uh, Iran's really uh, emerged after the signing of the nuclear accord, uh, but and it hasn't emerged in a very strong way yet because American sanctions still apply to banks and so on, and Iran is finding difficulty in getting customers for its oil and also for buying things abroad because uh, U.S. banks are warning foreign banks, European banks and Asian banks and so on, uh, to be careful about what entities to deal with in Iran because some of them are connected with the military and some of them are connected with people that uh, the United States deems unsuitable. Um, now, as far as Saudi Arabia is concerned, the Saudis have whipped up, I think, a false uh, idea that Iran is trying to take over the region. Um, and it, I think it is partly phony and it's partly real. It's very real for the Saudis themselves, especially, as I said, the, the 2003 war, when a Shia fundamentalist regime took power in Iraq, has got the Saudis very, very frightened. Uh, as long as Saddam Hussein, who was a secular ruler, although he was a Sunni, and he didn't stress his Sunnism, um, that was okay, and they backed him in the war against Iran, which took place between 1980 and 1988. Uh, but after that, um, 
the Saudis uh, sort of distanced themselves from Saddam Hussein, and so did the Kuwaitis and the Gulfis, and this, of course, started the whole problem which led up to the 1991 war uh, waged by the U.S. But Iran has not uh, really asserted itself in a very strong way. I mean, the Saudis blame Iran for uh, having connections with the rebels in Yemen, and it is a very tenu tenuous connection. It's not a very strong connection. They aren't even, uh, the Houthis in Yemen are not even part of the same branch of Islam, of Shia Islam, as the Iranians. In fact, they uh, practice a, a type of Islam which is more uh, similar to the Sunni version. And uh, the people talk about Syria as being a Shia-ruled state, which is not correct. It is a, a secular state. But it's had a long-standing relationship with Iran since the 1980s. And that relationship has stood both countries in good stead. So they insist on keeping that relationship. And that is why it exists. But the Saudis have this feeling that uh, they cannot have any Arab country uh, with good, having good relations with Iran. The, the um, Saudis are particularly perturbed. Uh, one gets the feeling that, the, that any rise in Iranian influence and any Iranian respectability in the region is going to see less support uh, coming to the Saudis from, from the Americans. And there is some evidence that the Americans are questioning their, their own um, devotion to, to the Saudis in, in the recent period? Well, I think it's about time. I mean, the Saudis have been um, exporting their version of Islam, their sectarian um, version, into all the Arab countries and into Africa and elsewhere for the past half century. And they spent hundreds of billions of dollars doing it, building mosques, training preachers, and also um, winning over workers from Asia and Africa who work in Saudi Arabia. So they have emissaries who go off back home and are um, Wahhabis. And they also have supported, of course, the uh, Mujahideen in Afghanistan, uh, which is the... Uh, which for which forced the Saudis to or, excuse me which forced the uh, Russians to leave, and these people are the precursors to all of the present uh, extremist radical Sunni organizations like Al Qaeda and Islamic State and Jabhat al Nusra and uh, this whole host of fundamentalist groups which are operating in Syria and to some extent in Iraq. Thank you very much, Michael. Thanks to Simon Carswell, Dennis Staunton and Michael Jansen, and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. <laughs>